Uh, welcome to our first ever Into the Word uh, night. It's really exciting to have you guys here. I hope you're enjoying the salubrious uh, quarters here at Tennessee's Leisure Center. I think it's good to have a place where we can air, uh, we've got all the basic necessities. We just have to share the room tonight, or the building tonight, with um, uh, the leaders of the Gilbrights, who apparently have a regular meeting here at the same time. So they're going to be in the room behind us. Um, but yeah, we've got this room together, and there are bathrooms just out the back there. Um, we've got some cookies and water. That's Riley, the design on the water supplies there at the back. Um, so hopefully you'll have everything. If you want to make a hot drink, we've got some supplies in the kitchen, which is um, for the foyer as well. But yeah, thanks so much for coming out. It's been a hot February sticky day, and it's the middle of the week, and I know what it's like to be long commutes and bolt to life group or group nights, and especially when it's not a life group night, it's just that much easier not to go. Um, but yeah, so glad you made it priority. These nights are um, all about us trying to give some priority as a group and as individuals to getting into the Word. And, and so letting ourselves cultivate a hunger for the Word this year, um, and actually growing in our ability to discern it and search the Word and divide it rightly, uh, as Paul encourages Timothy to do. Um, so tonight, uh, uh, you've probably heard um, at the family meeting or at other times, we're going to be basically have a pretty simple formula, just taking one book of the Bible. Um, each year, uh, the plan at this stage is to do two books of the Old Testament and two books of the New each year, um, and both look at it just on its own terms, and also look at the strand of how Jesus appears uh, across the Bible, how he, how he is in all the scriptures. Um, so that's what we're doing tonight, and my hope though tonight especially, the Psalms are a remarkable book to look at, and really I suppose that there's a specific hope of these, um, it's that you can take them and that you can actually be enriched in tangible ways in your personal relationship with God. That's what they are. They're an extraordinary book among all the Bible books. Um, they're not teaching directly, they're not history directly, although they have bits of both. Uh, they're kind of a, a prayer book, if you like. Um, as, as one writer says, uh, they speak from God to show us how to speak to God. Or another writer says they're, they're partners with us in prayer. So this is really all about you guys uh, learning to be able to, more to be able to take the Psalms um, and turn them into prayer to God. Uh, and I, I've just really loved delving into the. I realise how much I don't know uh, and how big they are. I mean, you think that some preachers take years to preach through a single book of five chapters in the Bible. Martin Lloyd James, I think, spent 12 years on the book of Ephesians, which is five chapters. Psalms has 150 chapters, and we've really got one hour tonight. So, um, on top of that, I also want to say I'm, I'm really grateful that I've been working together with my wife, Nikki, and my friend Riley on this. It's really a team. Project, but we were commenting together today just how it really is. We really do have our learners' points on. It's something that, you know, so if you have feedback now, we can serve you better with this, let us know. Um, but our hope really is to serve you as best we can to make it easy, make it enticing for you to get into the Word of your own time. So, anyway, all I'm doing tonight is giving you that kind of intro to the Psalms and just some clues as to how you might dive in there, like kind of a roadmap, if you like, so as not to get too lost. So, hopefully, there'll be something for people who know the Bible really well. And something for people who don't really know much at all. You're all welcome here, no matter how much and how little you feel you know. Um, as I said, I've just learned how much I don't know, and it's been excited about learning more. Now, our aim, in a way, is to take that intro and then just have you guys um, delve into it yourselves. And this, I, I just love what Riley's put together here in this colourful little booklet. Um, he's headed up this devotional project, um, and we're, we're really taking to work together on the content to try and take what the kinds of things we're doing tonight. Um, and, and creating a little Bible study devotion you guys can use. So I know some of you probably 
got like email apps that send you daily readings and so on. Uh, and you can keep doing that, not to displace any of that. It's not compulsory, but I think it would be a great way just to spend some time over the next term before we hit the next book, uh, next term, to, um, to get into the Psalms. And Rhoda talked one of these at the end, but basically that we've just made like a kind of selection platter of different kinds of Psalms and giving you some encouragements and pointers as to how you might read them uh, for yourself. So he'll, I think, rather come at the end and explain how the booklet works. But yeah, thanks to Riley for getting this together, and thanks to the printers at Barker. <laughs> and they call it ink. I mean, we paid for it, but, uh, you know, it's still good of them to do it. I'm just going to get some um, water. Pardon me. So, um, the thing about the Psalms, actually, I was going to ask um, uh, Brendan to come and pray, actually, because before I get to think about the Psalms, I think it's always good when we, we come into the Word just to uh, cultivate that attitude of, of prayerful dependence. Um, the Word's inspired by the Spirit, it's given to us by God, and we need to pray for Him to open our eyes to see wondrous things in His Word. So I'm going to ask Brendan to do that for us. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this evening for the gift of your psalms. What precious farms they are, Lord. What, what a rich source of truth and joy, Lord. What, what beautiful truths that can help us to cry out and express our hearts to you. Lord, we ask tonight, Lord, that you would help us, uh, that you would help us. We learn more about the psalms, Lord. We want to grow in love even more with your psalms, Lord. Could you teach us this evening uh, more about your psalms, Lord? Would you, would you speak through uh, Mike this evening as he teaches, Lord? May these words be the words of your spirit to us, Lord, this evening. May you deeply move us once more to pour out your psalms, Lord. May they be not just songs uh, in our Bible, Lord, but songs on our hearts and on our lips, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Brendan. So, I just want this. This is the most dense-looking and boring-looking slide of the whole day. So, apologies <laughs> up front. Um, and it's kind of in a way just to get it out of the way, because what we're not going to be doing tonight is what you would normally do. What I would strongly encourage you to normally do when approaching a new book, which is look at authorship, look at the time it was written, the context, the purpose it was written for, its argumentative flow, uh, and its structure. So. Um, I've got a little bit here about authorship, but we're talking here about a collection of poems um, all, of all different kinds. Poems, prayers, songs, some for individual use, um, some for temple use, and probably a blend and a spectrum of everything in between. Written um, between, mainly written between the time of David's kingship, which is about 1000 BC. Uh, and we know that it went, the collection was open, as it were, all the way up until at least as far as the exile, because Psalm 137 is written as a reflection on the conditions of being in exile, which is in 586 BC. Now, I'm not going to go into the history um, uh, tonight, but I do want to get, give that sense. It's about 600 years over which these were written and collected, and if we included Moses' two psalms, maybe 900 years, um, uh, or approximately. Um, so, in, just in terms of a breakdown of authors, there are 73 that say of David at the top. Um, there are 12 from Asaph and 9 from the sons of Korah. So those Guys, um, a lot of the other authors were people who were appointed. Uh, you can read about this in the book of 1 Chronicles. Um, the sons of, of Levi, a special set-apart uh, priestly tribe in Old Testament Israel, and there were special groups who had 
an appointment to be songsters, musicians, worship leaders, essentially, um, in the Old Testament. But I don't want to go into that because I don't really think it's um, the most important thing about the Psalms. Another thing that some people do spend a lot of time on that I'm not going to um, is the structure. I just wanted to flag it and get it out of the way up front, um, which is that there is, in the Jewish um, scriptures anyway, the way they catalogue them, they group them into five books. Um, the only thing I want to say about that, I mean, you, a lot of people do um, find different meanings and sequences and so on, and so on, you could do that. Uh, but again, I don't think it's the main thing to do. But at the end, there is something worth noting, that at the end of every book, there's a kind of conclusion which ends in a big praise and amen. And then the best thing about the whole book is that uh, about that structure is that at the end of book five, there's like a turbo praise session. Rather than one psalm at the end of the book, it's like five continuing, rolling, kind of climactic psalms of praise, which I'm going to get to. But as I say, authorship and structure, they're the things you would want to go for straight away. When we get to the book of Romans, when we get to other, um, other New Testament books, um, Revelation, hopefully at the end of the year, these kinds of questions are exactly what we're going to look at. But with the Psalms, we don't, because really um, we've got a collection of different kinds of things, and the best way, as I'm going to put it um, to you tonight, is to look for um, patterns, look for four poetic forms um, behind the different kinds of Psalms. Um, so what they, I think the most important things, I've already kind of quoted some of these guys, um, is that the Psalms are so unique in the Bible, and they need to be kind of read um, as a unique book, because of what they are. Rather than telling us to do things uh, in a kind of command voice, um, though there is kind of you know a bit of teaching going on, as Athanasius, an early uh, church father, what was he bringing about 300 odd AD, around mm-hmm. that? Um, I think he put it nicely. Most of Scripture speaks to us, so you might have teaching books, commands, etc., Paul's letters to the New Testament. But the Psalms speak for us. And the whole thing we're trying to do tonight and in these devotional books as a follow-up is to get you guys to let the Psalms become your voice, to learn, as it were, how to speak with the Psalms. Um, John Golden Day, um, if you want to see Brendan Drool, you wave this in front of him. This is his volume one of a three-volume um, masterpiece, really, on the Psalms. Brilliant Hebrew scholar. And he, um, he reviewed a lot of people's views of the Psalms and boiled it down to this, which I love. The Psalms speak from God by showing us how to speak to God. And that's where the uniqueness really lies, letting their voice become our voice. Um, so I'm going to get you guys, though, thinking, I'm going to, at two points tonight, get you talking to each other, because I think it's good to kind of get your minds working in uh, other modes than just listening to me uh, later on. Um, so I want you guys to think with the person next to you, just, I'm just thinking two minutes here to get us thinking about our own experience of the Psalms. We've got three questions there, um, and just... No right or wrong answers, just to get a sense of where you're at. Um, one is, what do you like most about the Psalms? Second, do you have a favourite Psalm? Um, most of you spend a bit of time there, probably do. And third, what's one thing you find hard about understanding and applying the Psalms to your relationship with God? So are there bits that just don't make sense to you? What's, what do you find hard if there are things you find good? So I just want to give you like a minute or two, not very long, just to get you talking with your neighbour, twos or threes maybe... And then I'll maybe get some thoughts for you guys and see my So don't be awkward. For Willem to make his tearful departure. Um, thank you for, for sharing that. I, if we get time, I would like to hear what your answers were. That was really to sort of get you thinking along um, that line. And I want to give you um, yeah, my answer, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> so, um, which is... 
that I think a lot of what I've always loved about the Psalms without really realizing um, is, is is its imagery. We're dealing with a book which is poetry. It's the densest theological book, arguably, of the Old Testament, but it's all done in poetry. And sometimes poetry can pack in a lot more um, meaning than simple, straight-out prose can. And the thing about poetry is that sometimes it really hits home, and sometimes we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we don't quite know what's um, what's going on. So I think um, the main, and I won't go too much into the, the literary kind of forms of poetry, but the main thing you want to be aware of is just the amount of imagery. Like Psalm 23, the whole psalm. Yeah, it's New Zealand, exactly. I couldn't help but go back there in my mind, uh, Wayne. Um, those of you who don't know, I'm the Kiwi as a uh, so when I, green pastures, it's hard here in Australia, but in New Zealand it's easy to think of green pastures. Um, but the whole psalm, if you, if you go back and look at it, the entire psalm um, is, is imagery. There's actually not one concrete incident that was recorded that was a real historical incident. A lot, a lot of other psalms do have descriptions of real incidents and, and saving acts that God did. Psalm 23 is beautiful, but it's a great example of just how imagery works. because It's very elastic and this, it's real for the psalmist, it's true, uh, but it's elastic enough to come across two and a half thousand years or more, maybe three thousand years in this case, uh, and reach us right where we are now, which is an extraordinary gift from God, is that the, the, the very images can be so accessible, even when we're not really thinking um, self-consciously about um, poetry or the theology of it or anything like that. So there are some, this is what I like about the psalms, that was my answer to the question, just that the images can be so accessible, green pastures, I go back to the mother country. Um, or, you know, on, on the negative, um, sometimes some of the psalms of, of struggle, of protest, like Psalm 69, the poetry is just as accessible. Um, the psalmist says, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Now, obviously, the guy's not actually down a pit with his notebook writing the psalm. He's, he's putting imagery to his experience of being overwhelmed. We don't necessarily know what the experience was in the original psalm. We do know, in this case, actually, that this is what Je- you know, the gospel writers were showing Jesus was going through on the cross. Psalm 69 is sown all the way through the New Testament books when they describe Jesus' death. Um, so, but there's another example of an accessible image that we can just jump straight in with and understand we can put words to our own experience better than we could. Um, but there are some, and this, is, this answers the other part of the question, what's hard about reading the Psalms and applying them to us, some images we just don't access as easily. Like this one here, I love, because it's, it starts out awesome. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And you're like, yeah, it's so good. And he goes, it's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, <laughs> running down the collar of his robes. And you're like, wow, that's an oily beard. <laughs> and then an oily robe. It's not that awesome. Like the, the poetry for cultural and, and kind of context reasons isn't always um, open to us. And then there are some that are really, I think, are prickly parts of the Psalms. And there's a few of them. Some people call them um, imprecatory Psalms or they've got imprecations or curses in them. Um, and there's bits scattered all the way throughout. Like if, if you notice in Psalm 139, the one where... Um, the psalmist delights in God's nearness. I can't flee from you even if I lay in my bed in Sheol. 
Um, you're there, and then he breaks into this cursing of his enemies. Most of us in our Bible readings stop <laughs> and detour, and then pick it up at the end where he says, "Search me and know, you know, t- see if there's any wrong way in me or something like that." So we tend to kind of edit, do this kind of weird psalm avoidance thing where we just detour around. Uh, this one here, um, you don't. I mean, instinctively, I don't know what to do with it. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and then make their loins tremble continually. Uh, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. I mean, there's several reasons why that feels awkward for us because we're not used to voicing vengeance. The loin trembling sounds strange. The, um, and, and just the, the anger of it actually is foreign to us. Um, so that leads us to the goal for tonight, uh, which has two parts. Um, really, to answer this question, how can we interpret the Psalms? Uh, and so the first part is kind of more, is less sort of being in the Psalms, than looking at where they fit in the Bible and in God's um, plan. Um, and that is how to think about the Psalms uh, Christocentrically or in a Christ-centred way. And that's something um, which in this Into the Word series, um, you know, we're going to be pretty um, big on throughout. I mean, it's easy in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, we want to be thinking about how they um, relate to Christ. How is Christ at the centre of them. And the second question we'll look at, so it's really in two parts, uh, is how to let the different forms of the Psalms model for us um, how to pray and relate to God. So that's what I began with, this idea that the Psalms speak for us to God um, and, uh, and are partners with us in prayer. By the way, if you, just to clarify the note thing, so Riley wanted me to clarify, this is for take home, this is like a show bag item you get to take home and work on later, it doesn't have tonight's outline. Um, if you did want the notes that are up here, by the way, they are already on the Sovereign Grace website. Um, and if you're listening on the recording, they're there too. Hopefully you found them on the resources thing. They're the latest um, entry there. So you can follow along on those on your device of choice, if you like. Um, anyhow, so that's where we're going. So let's dive into the first one. Why a Christ-centered reading? Um, I've got a few points here. One, it's good to stop and acknowledge the Jewishness an Old Testament context of the Psalms. We, as Walter Brueggemann, one of the major scholars on the Psalms, says, we're really on Jewish territory when we enter the Psalms. And we have to remember that they're not ours by default. When I say ours, I think most of us here are Gentile Christians, right? We're in the, theologically, we're in the New, New Covenant. Uh, and, and the way that Paul and other writers talk about it is that we've been grafted in uh, to Israel. We, did, we, were, we were the ones who were far away, and now we've been brought near. The Psalms are part of Israel's heritage. And in a sense, we're like visitors, aliens who have been kind of welcomed in and given this heritage which was never ours and which we didn't really deserve. But they're ours, on the third point there, because they were Christ's first. And I think that's the anchor point uh, for the whole thing. They really are the Psalms of the Christ. Anyone know what Christ means, by the way? How it's not, you know how it's not Jesus' surname? It's a title? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anointed one. Yeah. And in Hebrew, what would be the equivalent word? Messiah. Messiah. Yeah, so we're talking about the same word. And in Old Testament, after in the history, after David, if a verse to write down I don't have up here is, is 2 Samuel chapter 7, where, where God promises, um, where David wants to build him a house, uh, which is the temple, and God says, yeah, you can, sure, your son will take care of that, but I'm going to build you a house. And it's like a pun on house. It works in Hebrew and English, oddly enough. And he says, I'm going to build your house, the house of David, like the dynasty of David. There will always be a son of David who's on the throne, who will rule forever. That was the Christ. That's the Christ figure. So we have Psalms 
that celebrate the early Davids, so David himself and the junior Davids following. But as Christians, we believe they point to the great David, the great Christ. And just as they were for Old Testament Israel, Psalms of the Christ, the anointed king, David, so in the New Testament they're Psalms of the Christ, Jesus. And because they're his, they're about him, and they're fulfilled in him, they become ours, which is one of the things which blew me away, just thinking what an incredible heritage to be given, undeserved, not just as a literary book, that would be extraordinary enough, but as a prayer book, and not just a prayer book, but we get given the very intimacy of relationship which the prayer book describes. Um, So that, I think, is an, an extraordinary thing. So how are the Psalms Jesus Christ's Psalms? Jesus the Christ. It'd be easier if we, if we did speak Greek because we'd always have to put the Christ in front of Christ and we wouldn't think of it like a sermon. It would be a title. So how are the Psalms Jesus the Christ Psalms? Um, I've got two points. On the, this is the first one just on this slide. I won't spend too long. But it's amazing when you go through the Gospels, you realise just how much Jesus breathed. He was immersed in them from a, as a child, right? As all the scriptures. But the Psalms were always on his tongue. And they're hidden there, you know... Um, if you want, as, as John Goldinger again says, if you took the Psalms out of the New Testament, you'd be left with this kind of, they'd destroy them, they'd be ruins, and there'd be hardly anything left standing. The Psalms are everywhere, and they're all on um, Jesus' tongue as he interprets and prays through his own experience. Most um, significantly, um, he prays them um, at the very moment of crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Straight out of Psalm 22.1. So he's on the cross, and it's not like he's trying to remember his Bible verse. It's just intuitive. He's just there, you know, led by the Spirit, being God, being very God and very man. Um, in a way, word of God and word of man join them. Um, in Gethsemane, he's alluding to Psalm 6 and 42. In his Beatitudes, you know, in the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, um, he sows in the idea of being pure in heart from Psalm 24. Um, from Psalm 37, this idea of the meek inheriting the earth, he just throws it in there. And his, most of his readers would have heard the Psalms. His love of Jerusalem, this really um, uh, became a hit home for me. I never realised you know, Jesus would sometimes stop and look at Jerusalem and say, oh, how I've longed just to, to protect you, put my arm around you, my wings around you, if only you would listen. It's so Psalm-like. I mean, it echoes God in the Psalms, but also echoes the this human psalmist's desire to, for Zion, for the city of God. Um, so that's the first way that he is, and that he prayed, breathed, knew and taught them. But the big point is what I was getting at before, that is the New Testament shows that the psalms were about Jesus and that he fulfilled their prophetic meaning as king and Messiah. And this is um, a kind of reading of the Bible, which I think the New Testament gives us. Not everyone agrees, so we will be upfront about that. Um, uh, but I believe it, it, it's, it's found in the New Testament to look at the Old Testament through the lens of biblical theology, that is, uh, as salvation history, a history we can understand as real, not just an allegory for other things, but as real history, but that finds its prophetic fulfillment um, in the events of Jesus in history um, and him becoming... Christ. So that's what we're taking is a biblical theological approach if you want to know. Um, but a little diagram, and you might want to download the slides just to have these at hand. I just used my iPhone scanner. I don't know if it's come out any good for you. Um, but to get some great diagrams out of this book, which I highly recommend, not on the Psalms, but on Old Testament um, biblical theology according to plan by Graham Goldsmith. This guy wrote the book. Um, and this is, for those who are in table talk, 
two years ago. This is a lot easier than the one we gave you. I'm sorry. You should have given me this. Um, and it's got some great diagrams. This one just goes through a whole lot of things that popped up in the Old Testament. Um, you know, there's this prophetic word, or Hebrews 1 says that's fulfilled in Christ. Going down the list, prophecy. Um, well, Acts 13 says that was fulfilled in Christ. Uh, go down the list, David's line. Paul says uh, it ended in Romans um, 1 3. His very definition of the gospel is that Jesus was son of David according to the flesh and son of God according to the resurrection. Um, promise to David, fulfilled. We're going to look at that in detail in a moment. Um, and so on and so on. The, the verse at the bottom there, Luke 24 27, I want to bring up. I said at um, the family meeting the other week um, that uh, this is a great verse to hold on to for looking at the Old Testament. It's on the road to Emmaus when, after the um, resurrection, his disciples are like, oh, wasn't that a full on few days? What happened to this Jesus guy? We thought he was the one and then he was killed. And Jesus walks up next to them and says, What are you guys talking about? They say, Oh, I haven't you heard of him out of town. And they talk about the events and he says, Ah, well, and he opens up the scriptures to them and tells them that the Christ had to go through all these things. He had to die, suffer, and be raised on the third day. And he sums it up, or that Luke sums it up with this beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning. Uh, himself. So that's the way Jesus saw his relationship to the Old Testament and the Psalms. So we're following him. Now again, a diagram from Goldsworthy, just to, I don't know, I'm trying to appeal to visual learners out there, I don't know if this reaches out to any of you. I've got, I got Wayne with the, the sheep in New Zealand, but you know, this is quite ringing his bell um, as much. Um, so basically you've got um, uh, the fact that we start at A, with the gospel. So we are Christians because of the gospel. That's why we're always in church proclaiming the gospel. But the gospel sends us back to the Old Testament. It's like our gateway. But we have a prior knowledge that it is a book about Christ. And so we look at these stages of revelation um, leading up to the fulfillment. So we don't sort of pretend to read it on its own terms. We do at the same time want to read each book on its own terms in terms of its um, kind of literary structure and its historical context. But theologically, we know already that it points to the Christ, and that's where we're heading. And so think of the Gospel as your gateway. I think that's a good way to think of the Psalms. Just to, um, now this is, not, I don't know if this is visual learners or kind of just something interesting to throw in. One way to think of it, you've got Goldsworthy's diagrams, and you've got Disney, uh, Disney story of Cinderella. And of course, the story of Cinderella, I actually have kind of forgotten bits of the story, but I, the key bit is... The shoe, right, at the end, where she leaves behind a shoe. And is it the prince or somebody who tries to go and find... He tries it on all the um, sisters and they're all all full of seven points. Humble old Cinderella is the one who fits the shoe. She wasn't expected, um, but she's the one who fits. It's a really helpful way of thinking about Jesus in the Psalms. Uh, I got this from Rob Smith, who preached at our church a couple of months ago. Um, It's kind of what he... Pardon? A picture? Uh, no, I didn't get the picture from Rob Smith. No, that was, that was Google Images. Um, uh, um, and Peter, although, yeah, there's no sort of Cinderella, but it's, a, it's a kind of Cinderella shoe argument here. That, and this is no ordinary speech. Peter, I don't know if you can see this, and I won't necessarily read it all, um, but it's a great passage to note. This is Peter's speech right after Pentecost at the beginning of Acts. Um, and he takes the opportunity to explain what's going on to those who think everyone's just drunk and um, having a good time. He says, no, it's the Spirit 
This is what was prophesied by Joel. And he concludes this great sermon, one of the greatest sermons in the whole Bible, and the foundation of the New Testament, with two Psalms, uh, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And it's Psalm 16 where he does a Cinderella's shoe argument because he, um, he quotes, and his readers would have fully known these Psalms, he quotes, uh, well he says, this, we had Jesus of Nazareth walking around doing signs. He was handed over to you, um, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is Psalm 16. He's just pulling out a long quote from Psalm 16. David goes on, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now it's a wonderful one we can access straight away, but its first meaning is about Jesus the Christ. Peter says, um, (laughs) he's, he's cracking a bit of a joke here. He says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David did die he was buried and his tomb was here today. He says, virtually, I'll take you and show you if you want. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, the Anointed One, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. That's just what we've been talking about, this biblical theology. Peter's doing it here in this sermon, saying, <laughs> the, the shoe did not fit David. He wrote about being, um, you know, never dying, but he's dead. I'll take you to his grave. The shoe only fit his descendant, the Christ, the true Christ. Um, uh, and uh, he goes on and just rams it home with um, Psalm 110. He says, David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool uh, for your feet. And he concludes, therefore, let Israel be short of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So Lord is an authority and Messiah, this anointed king. And his proof texts were the Psalms. Nobody could have fit the Psalms as they really were, except this true king. Um, so it's just one illustration among many of this Cinderella's shoe way of interpreting um, the Christ figure in the Old Testament. They really, the fact that it really points to Jesus. Um, this is another handy diagram from God's Word. It's the last of these kind of dense diagrams, I promise. But the thing to hold on to is that up here, um, we don't have a laser pointer, do we, right? Yeah, it's on the thing. Cool. How do I do The middle button. This is Riley sitting out with his teaching. Um, yeah, okay, so this, this bit here, can you guys see the red dot floating around? Yeah, so the Psalms, this is like a, this is like a grid, a one-page grid of salvation history, just in boxes. Across the top, um, is the column kingdom. So what kind of kingdom are we talking about? Um, who is, who is, or how is God relating to his kingdom in what form? So we know the Old Testament, he's Yahweh. So not just God created, but a specific name, Yahweh, the Lord. When you read capital Lord, L-O-R-D, in capitals in your Psalms, you're talking about the name Yahweh. You're not just talking about God in general, but a specific, specific name. Down here is who are God's people? How does, which part of mankind is he relating to? And down here is how is he, how is his presence focused in the world? Um, so going through, you had the first kind of kingdom was a prototype. We had God, Adam and Eve, in, in Eden. Then you had um, Abraham, 
Um, you had his descendants being the people of God, and the focal point for the place was Canaan. Um, you had the kind of Moses era, where Moses um, has a nation, the nation of Israel, not just Abraham's sister, but they've become a nation in Canaan. The Psalms are written all in this era here, the next one down. They're really about this era in, in kind of salvation history, where you have uh, God's kingdom being focused on David's line, as I was saying. It's all about these mini Davids, these King Davids, and, and the real David himself, and about the temple. Um, and so when we're reading the Psalms, we're reading poetry written in a world, theologically, that was all about Yahweh, him ruling through this king figure, who was like David, and him dwelling in his temple. So if you think of those three, those two things in particular, king and temple, we then, every time we're reading the psalm, have to think, and sometimes it doesn't really you know, change the course that much, but other times it will. Um, we have to think about how um, are these things fulfilled. And as we come down to Jesus, um, who's God's already called antitype, which is a fancy word for fulfillment. I don't know why you didn't say fulfillment. Um, but Jesus Christ, notice that he fulfills all of them. He is God. He is God's people represented, and he is God's focal presence, or focal point of presence in the world. And then in him, um, we relate to God as Trinity, at the bottom, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God's people are believers in Jesus, those who are in Christ, so they only have their status because of what Christ has done. And the temple um, is the new temple that Christ is building um, in the future, as in the New Jerusalem, but which, as Brendan, he's been preaching, I've still got to catch it, but um, that's eschatologically true, but now the kind of anticipation uh, is the way he's building a temple among his people. But primarily still, he is the temple. So that's kind of a grid, I think. It's, it might be a bit new and a bit abstract for you at this stage. Maybe it's something to become more familiar with over time. And don't be worried if it's going over your head. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just something to kind of be aware of. Um, to make it a little bit more concrete... I've just got a little summary um, here. Um, just go to the second point. Jesus becomes both king and temple and the way by which we who are far away can relate to God in the kind of intimate trust portrayed in the Psalms. So in Christ, the Psalms and the relationship with God they describe do become ours, um, which I think is a cause for praise. So this is a kind of where at the end of the, the first part I wanted to do. But I want, again, just to give... You a break from listening to me and get you talking with each other again. I'm going to get, um, I'm going to break you guys into three and get you to think about, in light of what we just talked about, how would you approach these tricky bits of the Psalms? Now I can put, put it, I'll give you a specific Psalm as an example if you want. But basically I'm going to need sort of three groups. So if I went for the, this side from Mel and Brian, CJ's row Ford, um, which do you want to do, Mel, of those three? Vengeance? Vengeance. Vengeance, okay, Mel wants vengeance. Um, and I go, so across would be Emma's row, Ford, Emma and Michelle, and Simon's row, and Coyote. What do you want, Coyote, my life group leader? Kingship. Kingship, <laughs> I thought you did, alright. Um, <laughs> that leaves uh, Zion and Temple for both sides, um, around Riley's sort of precinct up there. So again, just breaking the twos and threes like you did before, and then you need to get into a big group. But just take that one focus. So we've got you guys doing kingship, you guys doing vengeance, uh, and you guys doing Zion and the temple at the back. So just to just to write down a psalm, I'll give you a, a particular psalm. So take Psalm 18 for kingship. That's Coyote's uh, group here. Psalm 18 is a great psalm about 
the victory of the king, basically putting his putting to death all his enemies. Um, the vengeance. Um, um, I could give you that middle bit of. I think it's Psalm 69. Um, I quoted it earlier. It's like. Uh, let me just get it. Sorry. Twenty around sort of verse 23, 24. Sorry, I'll bring it up again. So Psalm 69, 23, 24, in Zion and Temple. You guys can take Psalm 84 as an example, if you want an example. You can talk about it in general. So the question is, when you come across a psalm that has this kind of thing in it, how would you relate it to us today? Through Christ. So not just generally, but through Christ. How does Christ... Yeah. appeal to the higher authority. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would I agree with you about 0.55 in that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's great. I, the only way, thing I would do differently is flip it on its head. So you're reading a psalm about David, who's victorious. He's the Christ who's victorious, and he's vindicated over his enemies. So yeah, and if I, you're talking about going straight to us. And I think ultimately you would go to us in that same application, but via Christ, it might help to read him as the Christ yeah. who was victorious in his battle against the enemies as defined by God. I mean, I'm a bit of because we know he was. Yes, exactly. So I agree with you on that. Yeah. yeah. So just, yeah. So I can put Christ, um, but you're assuming that's already happened. Yeah, so I'll just bring it out with what was there. It's no point. So it's, we're actually like 0.9, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> 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 what were you going to say, Wayne? Verse 17 says, He delivered me from my strong enemy, and we find that's what Christ does with our strongest enemy, which is sin. Mm, that's right, yeah. Yeah, he's the victor against the enemies, exactly. So you can take um, Psalms of Christ's victory. Psalm 2 and 110 are the main ones um, in the New York, especially 110, as I uh, mentioned in church the other night, is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. And it's all about victory and defeated enemies. And the, the New Testament writers all use it to talk about how he's defeated sin and death, death itself, um, and the evil one. Um, and so it's, yeah, so. Yeah, certainly there is victory for us, but it's the primary, I think we're going through this Christ-centric way, we put him at the centre, it's his victory first. And it kind of helps sometimes just to um, show you working, as it were, mentally. Um, but yeah, great thoughts, King people. What about uh, the uh, Zion people? What did you guys come up with? Let <laughs> <laughs> we read a sign of Zion. Heaven. <laughs> so what did you say? Heaven. Heaven. How so? Just one, one word answer? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh. <laughs> I have to agree with you, know? you know? yeah. 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 Yes, that's right. God. Yeah. And where the Jews then um, treated the temple as the presence of God. Yeah. So, so where the temple is, it's where God is. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and way in, into the New Testament, in John chapter 4, yeah. when, when Jesus Christ clarified that to the Samaritan woman, yeah. it's not really the temple, uh, but it's in me. Yeah, here's the temple. Here's where God is. It's pretty nice yeah. that he also puts it in Matthew 11, 28, where all who are heavy laden come to me. And it seems right what what Psalm 84 in uh, verses uh, it says like a thousand years, you know, in, in your temple. It's better than, oh, no, better than a thousand years outside. Yeah, yeah, I'd rather be just for yeah. a split second. Yeah, yeah anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. So it speaks like if you're in Christ, there yeah. you will find rest. Yeah. And the rest of And true beauty. Yeah, that's great, Robert. Yeah, yeah. Point nine eight, though. And yeah, John four is great. And, and John two is also another one which gives us Jesus directly, along, very close directly, says that he is the temple because he says to them, um, 
tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He, he plays on the word temple, which is saying, my body, when it's died and risen again, is the temple, which is the focal point of God's dwelling with man. So, and then we could bring it back to um, Joel. So, Matt, you can was it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, I think Joel's right. But the ultimate, it's like, it's again an ultimate kind of um, derivative truth. So, ultimately, it is um, fulfilled where that dwelling where God is with his people and they are one. That's what Revelation 21 points to. Heavenly Zion is where that unity between God and man, that intimacy, that presence, and that the beauty of that presence is ultimately felt. Now it's in Christ primarily, and then it will be in Christ fully. Um, and you know there could be other. Remember, Pete Breeze who came and preached to us, um, who was from our plant in church a couple of years ago, uh, and applied it to the local church that there's a God's dwelling place. And certainly through Ephesians, he talks about Paul talks about the way God's building together His people as a temple to dwell in by His Spirit. Um, but again, we hold Jesus as the center. Primarily, He is the temple, and these other meanings are kind of secondary and can be enjoyed as well, but because of what he's achieved and embodied. Um, what about the vengeance people? This is a really hard just make a point there too. The temple, um, the scriptures say that we are the temple of God. Yeah, our bodies. Yeah, our bodies. In Christ, and yeah. that elevates our whole physical body to, to uh, a level, really, that we need to look after it. Yeah, true. But... Uh, it might be a stretch to call you Zion. <laughs> 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 um, but you're right, yeah, there is that temple language about our bodies. So it's true, Dad, yeah. Um, okay, so vengeance. What about um, vengeance? This is one of the hardest parts of the psalm, so you guys did not get an easy one, thanks, Mel. <laughs> what do you reckon, Melissa? Yeah, I understand. Um, so I was thinking about, like, this idea of vengeance. It's like, punishment for wrongdoing, right? It's yeah. like, someone's wronged me so bad and I'm crying out to God saying, would you just, just justice is what I want. Yeah. Do this thing because this would be right. Yeah. You know? yeah. I was thinking about how yeah. we can read ourselves as the, the person yes. who's the unrighteous one, Yeah. in some sense. You know, where where the person who rightly should be the recipient of the curse, you know, of the of the, um, the punishment, you know. Um, but in the same breath, Christ is the one who is the recipient of the curse in many yeah. um, And I was thinking about also on the flip side, like we're also the righteous one. Um, we're also the person who's who's been redeemed and sanctified and stands right before God, who cries out to God, you know, and says, "Have you know vengeance, you know, justice," and cries out for justice. Yeah. Um, I think like the revelation yeah. exactly. And in the same way, it's Christ is the one who will come. In that final day, angry Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. Let me just come up here and keep going. That, that's. Um, I think that's really. Does anyone want to add to that in the group? It's kind of hard to follow. <laughs> I, um, just, just I, I think. That, yeah. I'm just thinking on the vengeance side of things as well. Is that Christ bore the vengeance, and it's, mm. it's that those that are outside of Christ receive the vengeance. So He's offered salvation, like mm. He's offered a way out of vengeance. He's paid for it. Yeah. But it's those that are outside of Christ receive still, vengeance. And, and ultimately, it is still coming. That's yeah. the wrath of God, yeah. So it's it's very sobering. And I think both of you, I would put both those together, and I think it's it's spot on. And it's illustrated by a remarkable thing I, I found just in preparing. Psalm 69 that I gave some of you guys to look at. Um, if you compare that, which you will in your devotional booklet if you get to the end, 
with uh, Matthew 27, I think it is, where where it's the crucifixion. Yeah, 27. And you can map, you can tick off all these things from the Psalm 69 and Psalm 22 that happen in the Matthew passage. But there's one glaring exception. The passage where the psalmist curses his enemies and calls down judgment is the one thing that doesn't get ticked off in Matthew 27. It just doesn't happen. It's like how David... Uh, David, I call him Dave. Dave preached on, um, the, um, on, on the roar that never came. It's the, it's the call for vengeance that never came. And if we read Luke, you know, what does Jesus say instead of calling for vengeance, which is so extraordinary? Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Just at the point where anybody who was following along with Psalm 69 would be going, he's going to call down vengeance. He comes out with an extraordinary thing. You know, not to mention the, the agony of of being on a cross, and comes out with forgive them. So, you know, in a way, Jesus is kind of um, radically doing something to the meaning and the way we can apply those, those psalms. And I think it comes back to what you guys are talking about, that he, that vengeance is real, judgment is real, but at that point, he is the one drinking the cup of the Father's wrath, which is an extraordinary thing. Um, you know, there are other ways in which um, people say we should think more about voicing that call for justice and vengeance in our prayer life. Um, and there is maybe a regard for that, but again, I think if we put the gospel at the centre, that can kind of take its place rather than becoming the main thing. That, that um, comment um, where it says and he is jealous for us, but he is... And that's what the sons are, are actually doing, Walter Rigman points out. They're actually voicing a call for vengeance, but yeah. they're not actually taking it. Yeah. They're actually they are doing that. They're leaving it to God. And in salvation history, it turns out that God then takes vengeance on his son, which is, you know, scandal, isn't it? Um, so let's get to the next bit, which is um, a bit quicker. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll just race through. I don't want to keep you guys um, late. Um, but I do think it's important. We've kind of set up this big picture biblical theology of, of looking at them Christ-centrically or in a Christ-centered way. Uh, but then, you know, in, one, in some way we come full circle and we say, okay, so the Psalms in Christ are our prayer book. Uh, what do we do with them? How do they teach us to pray? And that's what we're going to be looking at now. And I don't have anything fancy like Cinderella's shoe, but I do have John Calvin and his mirror. Um, <laughs> I like how he's, it's a really cool pose, isn't it? He's captured in the oil and canvas there. Um, uh, but, okay. It's very Melbourne, actually, I think. Um, and Calvin. Um, those on the recording are looking at the, uh, we're looking at the picture of Calvin we have on the, the slide. Okay, so, um, let's get back to it. So I've got two little analogies that two great reformers, John Calvin, um, 16th century um, French reformer based in Geneva, you know, who shaped reformed theology, you know, that we're really the benefit, the, the, um, for our benefit, you know, we still read him today. And Martin Luther, um, some of you will probably know, um, you know, to cut a long story short, I was a catalyst for the Reformation, which brought about um, Protestant um, understandings of salvation but we're not going to go into that, just to say they each got a really cool illustration for how the Psalms work as a prayer book Calvin is all about the mirror, he says the, or there's another one in here too the Psalms are like an anatomy of all the parts of the soul for there is not an emotion 
in which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So you can see almost every nuance, every kind of fragment of emotion you could experience, he says, the Spirit has given us this inspired book uh, which lets us see it like in a mirror. And actually Calvin goes on to say, it's so good that we can become aware of our hypocrisy and become aware of feelings we didn't know we had uh, and not let it hide. So that's how he uses the mirror. I actually like, and that's a really famous quote, a lot of people pull out Calvin in his mirror. Not many people pull out Luther and the school teacher. Um, but I reckon Luther's school teacher is actually an even better one. Uh, Martin Luther, in his little preface to the, um, his first volume of commentaries on the Psalms, says, um, Therefore, the most gracious and blessed Spirit of God, the Father of his humble scholars and the teacher of infants, well knowing that we know not how to pray as we ought, he's quoting Romans, um, what is that, Romans 8? Uh, in order to help our infirmities, and here's the bit of the illustration, like schoolmasters who compose letters or subjects for their pupils to write home to their parents, has prepared for us in this book words and feeling sensations in which we may converse with our Heavenly Father and pray unto him concerning those things which he has taught us in the other books that are to be done and imitated, that man may not want anything, as in lack anything, uh, that is necessary unto his eternal salvation. So great are the care of God over us and his kindness to us. And that's true, isn't it? How, how so great is the care and kindness of God to us? And God is blessed forever. So it's very um, turgid translation. sounds very pious. But the bit I want to get you... I mean, it's awesome. Don't get me wrong. I love it. But the bit I want to zero in on, it's just a bit in the brackets. Like schoolmasters who compose letters or subjects for their pupils to write home for their parents. And I want to pick up on that, because you know, that's a really good illustration of what the Psalms are like, because in a way they give us um, templates or forms, if you like, that we can then make our own as we pray to God. In, you know, Across all of those different kinds of emotions, we can learn and partner with the Psalms to bring them to God, to be honest about them and to bring them to God. And the whole great thing about the Psalms is the diversity um, of these kind of feeling sensations and the way we're shown, we're taught, modelled, for, uh, in how to bring it to God. And I, I want to pick a, a, on this point a, a bit because I think in our kind of um, circles it's very easy to confuse the unformed with the authentic. You guys see that? So well, we often think that if something just comes out unprepared and it's of the spirit, you know, there's no structure to it, um, it's more spiritual in a way than less. Now, um, I know I'm generalising, but it's worth thinking about the fact that um, God actually gives us forms, so it doesn't just lead us to make things up, but actually gives us forms, and they're not less authentic. They can actually be more authentic, actually help you give words uh, to feelings in ways that you didn't know how to. Um, and I was, or thinking about another analogy, this is, I don't have a picture or a great reformer to back me up, um, but music, right? If I wanted to be completely spot, like if Jesse said, okay, we're going to have, which we do, we say we're going to have a time where we're going to do some spontaneous um, uh, worship, and so I have my guitar. And if I had never learned any scales, it would be a disaster. <laughs> it would be like if I played, like if I had a guitar, yeah. Or if I picked up the drums, I don't know any um, paradiddles or whatever you have to know. Um, and so it would come out just as gobbledygook, right? I might feel like it's being really authentic, but in fact, it's edifying nobody, let alone myself. So the scales we learn as musicians 
feel really mechanical at first, but you know, over time as they become your own, they become your words, that you can then find a moment and express you know, in song or in context of music. And that's in a way what the sounds are like. They're like learning you, training you in your scales, giving you a repertoire that you can then, at a fitting moment, corporately, individually, I think, bring them to God. And so, to get specific about them, I think it's good to think about the different forms of psalms and the way they give you different um, major scales, as it were, different minor scales sometimes. Um, so I've got a few things they model, and this is really what's going to take us home tonight. Um, they model praise, they model hope-grounded complaint, they model thankfulness, they model trust, they model deliberate remembrance of God's saving work. Um, and I just want to unpack them a little bit. The, the most notable thing about praise is, is the fact that it is, in a way, and we've written this in the devotional book, like the compass needle. It's like the true north of the compass of the Psalms. So that the, the climax of every book ends in praise, the climax of the whole book ends in a giant turbo-length praise, as I said. Um, and so praise is really where the great truths of God, the objective truths of God, are declared and celebrated. And they're done so noisily. The, uh, the Hebrew words that are used are just all about exuberant, messy noise. There's instruments coming in left, right, and center. Some of the words we don't actually pick up in English. Some of the words that um, the translators just give us as praise are actually words like, make a na-na-na noise, or make a la-la-la noise. So it's all like, it's Alistair. He knew he was right all along. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so it's just all on. It's, it's body, it's mind, it's just showing the worthiness of God through exuberant bodily praise. Um, and there's a, it's great just to think about the form when you're reading them. So in the devotional book, we've got three typical ones, Psalm 95, Psalm 100, and 103 that you can go and work on. They have this format where, and again, this is where you can become aware of form and, and it can edify you, where they have an invitation section and then a description section. That's what most scholars call it. The invitation section is, come on, everyone, let's make a noise. Let's just get into it, bring out the lyres and the tambourines and whatever you do. Let's all get in, get on with it. And then the description is why. Why would we do this? And that's where you just get these great theological truths about God that are always true, his character, his steadfast love, um, Psalm 95 is a classic example. Here's the invitation. Come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before him. So it's talking to each other. Let's go. Let's do it. And then description is the why. For Yahweh, the Lord, is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands, his hands formed the dry land. If you go on and open Psalm 95, you'll see that it does that same structure, invitation, description, again. Sometimes they do it two or three times, so Psalm 95 does it twice. Um, Psalm 100 is another one about entering his gates with thanksgiving, and then it says, for we are like the sheep of his pasture, and he cares for us. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, Coyote could recite it for us now if he wanted, bless the Lord, O my soul, it's an invitation, and then it goes through some of the most beautiful and New Testament-like salvation um, kind of narratives you get in the whole book. So there are the Psalms, and I think it's worth knowing those, that structure. I'm just going to put in C.S. Lewis here um, about um, oh, his great book, Reflections on the Psalms, about how it's, it's not, we don't merely delight to praise, uh, sorry, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So that's true about even if we praise our spouse the way they look, we're in, it's an appointed consummation. If we praise our 
the footy team we follow, he says, um, that very elation of jumping out of the seat when the All Blacks score a try is, is it the appointed consummation of the Blues Like Cup. Um, but he, he says, the worthier the object, the higher the elation. So I wanted to put that in just about the kind of primacy of praise. But here's the thing. The Psalms um, are not all one way. And in fact, what, what blew me away is that there are actually fewer praise psalms than there are psalms of struggle, if you like. Um, some people call them psalms of protest, which I think is pretty good. Um, some people call them psalms of, uh, of complaint. Some people call them psalms of lament. Um, and you actually, I reckon the key to understanding the psalms is getting that combination. At university, I'd say that juxtaposition between praise uh, and hope grounded complaint straight away. And it's held in tension all the way throughout. Um, and they are fantastically honest. Um, the Psalms know that life is dislocated, says Walter Brueggemann, and it needs no cover-up. Uh, the Psalmist is incredibly bold in telling God, hey, things are not right. This is not how you said it would be. This is not what I expected. Um, and in fact, they don't even pray that much. Um, I learned this this week. John Goldinger says that they spend about 80% of the time just protesting about one line praying, where Christians tend to do 80% praying, why can you fix this and this and this and this and this? Help! But they do, they reverse the proportion. It's all about help. Where are you? Why don't you come? How long, oh Lord? And then, oh, I'll leave it to you to work out how. It's, it's a kind of like a trusting, right? It's robust and anger and, and fear and frustration being vented. Um, and I, I like the way Brueggemann again says that the Psalms have this rhythm in them where they're so honest about disorientation and the, and the language they use is so honest, rough-edged. It's not the sort of stuff that belongs in polite religious circles. It's hardcore. Uh, and it, but you have this way that disorienta- disorientation kind of gives way to reorientation, to going back to where the, the compass needle points. So the truths around the praise psalms about God's goodness are there all the way through. But... The psalm is very honest about the times, and I've been so encouraged by this, when it just doesn't feel like those truths are really true. It sure doesn't feel like you're with me right now, God. So much so. I mean, I don't know if you've ever prayed this to God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It always sounds like he's accusing God, right? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And I wanted to bring this one up because it's, it's, it's a short one. and There are long ones like this, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, that Jesus quotes. Um, but the way they have often at the end, this kind of like, if you'd have graphed it, they're really low. And there's a little upturn at the end, a little glimmer of hope. That's pretty, all of the psalms of protest or lament have that in them, except for one psalm, um, Psalm 88, for reasons I don't know why. Um, but all across the whole book, there are these protests um, and this little glimmer of hope, this reorientation um, at the end. So, so be aware of that. I mean, I've been great. This is probably the area where I've been most encouraged to um, protest more and pray less, because it actually encourages me. Sometimes I think I try to manage. God's priorities by giving them detailed um, prayer requests, you know, because I'm really anxious and I actually, I don't do what Psalm 66 says, I don't just pour out my soul before him and trust him. It's actually, these, these are actually amazing expressions of trust because they're like, this is freaking me out. I'm up to my neck. I'm about to be swallowed. How long are you going to take, Lord? Well, sometimes they talk to the enemies. How long are you going to attack me? I'm like a tottering fence about to fall over. 
Psalm 62. So it's, it's, yeah, I just think it's tremendous that next to praise, in fact, numerically there are more of those um, hope-grounded complaint psalms. Um, and we've got some that you can work through there. I think Psalm 42 to 43 is an excellent one. Another kind of form altogether is the thankfulness one. And this is, um, I think, really great model for church. And I think actually that this, um, as a church, this is something actually we, do, we were doing it on Sunday and actually something that you guys do really well. And I'm encouraged by that. The, some of the psalms are not praise psalms. They're thanks psalms. And the difference is that they're recounting a really specific act of God or an answered prayer um, in their life. Where the, the praise psalms are all about declaring the great general truths about God that are eternally true. The thanks psalms follow a little formula I've got down the bottom. They're like a public testimony where the the psalmist comes before the congregation and says, I'm going to praise God. Here's what happened. I was in huge affliction. Everything was going wrong. I was about to be covered up. Um, The the pit was going to swallow me. I prayed. God answered my prayer. So come on, everybody. Let's all join together and praise. And you end up coming back to that compass direction of praise again. Um, Psalm 30 is a classic example of this. It begins with a commitment to praise. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you've healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from those uh, among those who go down to the pit. And you can follow it through and, and find that kind of... And it's not always mechanical. It's not always exactly the same, but there's that pattern there. It comes back to praise. And in a way, you've got... A, um, <laughs> the only difference in some ways between these psalms and the protest ones is that it's like fast-forwarding in time. You've got, you've got psalms written when the prayers haven't been answered and psalms written when the prayers have been answered. And it's so good that there are both. Because often, you know, in our lives, uh, that's our experience, right, as we're, as we're walking in trust before God. Um, I'm going to bring up, on that point, a little diagram. This is not Goldsworthy. You can tell because it's beautifully clear and simple. Um, uh, sorry, Goldsworthy. Um, Goldingate. Um, this is only diagram, as far as I know. The way he talks about the spiral of the, the spirituality in the Psalms, the way that there's a constant movement. Um, you go around, praise is kind of like the starting point, but stuff goes wrong, and all of a sudden you're like, God, where are you? I thought you were steadfastly loving, but what's happening? Please, I cry out to you. Then you get kind of this element of trust, God. In, you know, my soul finds rest in you alone. Psalm 62. I'm going to, Lord, you are my shepherd. Even though I'm in the shadow of death, you've got those sounds of trust I haven't touched on yet. Then the thanksgiving sounds like, oh, phew, God answered my prayer. I'm out of it. It's so good, God, you're so good, I'm going to praise. And then I'm going to go on. And I haven't touched on the obedience sounds. But there are other sounds, as you know, that go through all about it, delighting in and obeying God's law. And then once you realize how good that is, you go back to praise. And so you have this kind of spiral. The only thing is it's not just a circle going around and around over again. Each time you go around it, or the psalmist goes around it or brings us around it, you know, you can deepen your trust, you can deepen your obedience, you can hide in your praise and actually grow. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's a great, I mean, you don't have to take it, but I find it a very suggestive and helpful um, way of looking at the spirituality of the Psalms. Um, one more, just trust. Um, I want to bring this up um, because the, the trust Psalms are similar to the crying out ones, but there's kind of less anxiety about God not being there. They're, all, they're almost like they have a these are probably the ones that have encouraged me the most actually in preparing. Because they're, they're wonderfully honest about the threat. So David here, um, I think it's David, he talks about armies encamping against him. That's pretty threatening. Um, uh, and there's every reason to fear. And he's honest about that. This is a really threatening situation. 
But even so, uh, you are my light and my salvation. And the wonderful thing about these psalms, we've got a, um, a selection in here for you as well. They have, they're really revealing great images about God. He's a rock. He's a fortress. He's a stronghold, a refuge. Um, and one of the exercises we get you to do is just to go through and look at those images these psalms of trust give you and the way they kind of are a counterpoint to the enemy images about threat and you know, attack. Um, I wanted to bring this up, and it won't be long at all now, um, but the one uh, poetic technique that is helpful to be aware of in Hebrew poetry is parallelism. Anyone know what that means? I'm funny if I have to say it. Parallelism. Parallelism. Parallel with an ism on you. Uh, anyone know what it means? Right? Yeah, you're cheating. Yeah. Yeah. I actually used to teach you at school. Oh. Yeah. Um, we teach you to use 7, so you should know oh. that. Uh, <laughs> 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 you get to it soon now. I'll get to it Exactly. It's almost like saying the same thing twice. That's exactly right. And it's, it's the most common poetic technique in the Psalms. Um, and again, um, as Lewis points out, it's either a remarkable coincidence or a providence of God. That is a technique, unlike most poetic techniques, it does, they would, most poetic techniques wouldn't translate from language to language. But this, because it's structural, does. You go A and then A with a little twist. right? So the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? They're like little twin branches. They say the same thing, with a, sometimes with a tiny nuance, sometimes sort of reinforcing it by stating the opposite in the negative. Um, I just wanted to bring it to your attention because it's a beautiful thing. Um, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich, one of the theologian, German theologian, said it's, it's like almost like a musical device that helps it sustain in your head as you read it. It's like it stays in there for longer because you're not just letting it go across the screen. It goes across twice, and you know, it's, it's almost, I think, of an electric guitar, a pedal which helps the notes sustain and linger. Um, so, just wanted to bring it up because Psalm 27 1 is a classic example of that. Um, finally, just, just one, uh, two last points very quickly. We won't read any, but the Psalms model deliberate remembrance of God's saving work, especially the ones that are to be sung together. They'll often recite the Exodus, the great saving narrative of Old Testament history. And for us, we can never leave the gospel. The gospel is salvation history accomplished and completed. And reciting that, deliberately bringing it to mind is one way we can um, embody uh, the spirituality of the Psalms. And finally, I just want to um, end on this. I think um, the Psalms are wonderful because they model for us and they show us that true relationship with God is both individual and corporate. It's both the vertical and the horizontal. And in the Psalms, they're actually poetically almost sometimes impossible to distinguish. The two become one. And I think they're a wonderful thing. I mean, my favourite Psalm, Psalm 62, just to end, um, uh, sometimes it addresses God, sometimes it addresses others. Um, sometimes it talks to the enemies. How long will you attack a man to better him? And then sometimes he talks to himself in verse 5. For God alone and my soul wait in silence. Um, and then at the end, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So that it's really good to try and trace the voicing. So who's he talking? What voice is it in? Second person, third person? Is, it, is he talking to God in you? Is he talking to others about God? Is he talking to himself to believe in God? And it's wonderful how many people just go from one to the other, to the other, to the other. 
And it, I think it really is something we can learn from it. And you guys already do it. And model, but they model for us the corporate and the individual. Um, look, I'm going to leave it there. I, I'm going to just ask Riley to come up and conclude. Just He wants to just give us a little quick word about how to use these as we leave. Um, to see, I think there's a great job preparing them. Took what looked like a boring word document and turned into a nice... Um, Chris, a little um, devotional book for you guys. So, maybe when we come up, let me know you need to pray. Maybe, you know, commit ourselves in praise to, to God who gave us this great book. Yeah. Right. Let's give my round of applause. Yeah, that was too much, but it was amazing. Like, there's so much things to learn. You're going to have to go back into the slides and re listen. I think I cheat all the time with the Psalms. I just read it and go, yep, straight to me. You know, quite straight away. So the point of this um, is to help you to stop cheating um, and <laughs> to actually learn how, okay, when I open up the Psalms, how do I actually do it? How do I actually read it? How do I do it well so I get the most out of it? And how do I let the Psalms most appropriately become my voice? Um, so we want to, you know, we want to have the Word of God on our lips and in our hearts and in our minds. And, so that's kind of the point of this, and, you know, it looks sort of pretty. Uh, but the way it works is an you know, introduction to read that. But each one, we have a, a theme or a category. Um, so Psalms of Praise or Psalms about Creation. There's a little blurb about how that category works uh, within the Book of Psalms. And then what uh, Mike has done, um, and Nikki, um, and I did one of them or something. But what we do is we, we make three questions that you can apply to three psalms within that theme, basically. So if you look at the top of this little, it's a worksheet, okay, so <laughs> um, And basically what you do is read the three questions, and maybe one day you could just look at Psalm 95 and try and answer those three questions. And hopefully by going through that process, you know, three times, and the formatting's a bit off on that first page, sorry about that. But once you go through, you kind of start to see, okay, all right, this is how I read a psalm of praise. This is how I make it become my voice. Um, so you've got Psalms of Praise, you've got the Psalms of Struggle, you flip over Psalms of Creation, they're all pretty straightforward, Psalms of Trust, Psalms of Confession, there's only two Psalms we really pulled out for that. Um, and then, but then we finish with the Psalms of the Christ, and it changes a little bit, it's a little bit more work, a little bit harder, um, and I'm tempted to just Scrap that. Even when Mike started going, we're going to start with, you know, talking about how do we read Psalms in a Christological way, all the documents up, I was like, oh, too much. But I think if we actually, you know, try and stop and go through this, it'll make the Psalms all the more richer. Because when we hear about the temple, we'll be thinking, oh, Jesus is our temple. You know, when we hear about vengeance, oh, we, you know, Jesus took on the vengeance, and all that type of stuff, we'll be able to see it more in the book of Psalms. Uh, so, you know, chuck it away if you don't want it. Uh, but the church paid for it, so <laughs> give it to someone else maybe. We only printed 60 of them, and there's about 60 of us here. Um, so if you don't want one, maybe give it back. Uh, I'll just chuck it up the back. Uh, but we'd love you to use them, and we'd love to hear if they help anyone. Uh, they did take a lot of work, so if no one uses it, we want to do it again. Um, but we'd love you to use it. I'm going to try and use it. I actually used it today. I had a student rock up to my classroom and say, hey, can I read the Bible with you? I went, okay. And I pulled out one of these. And I did. One of these. I did. So I went, okay, it works. It's actually quite helpful. Um, so I actually got to road test it. Because we made it, but I actually haven't done it. So I feel like, well, now I can verify it works. Um, 
which is helpful. So why don't I pray for us? And uh, yeah. uh, dear Lord God, you are the great God of the universe, the great uh, Creator of the world, the Almighty, the King. Uh, we worship you, Lord God, and we worship you, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the Promised One. Uh, Lord, we worship you. You're our King. You're our Temple. You're our Zion. You're our everything, Lord. As a church, may you please bless us that we might know how to speak to you, how to pray to you, how to communicate with you better. Uh, Lord, may we have your word on our heart and in our lips. Lord, may we think um, in the way you want us to think. Lord, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you bring the Psalms to even more life. And may you help us to learn how to uh, understand them, to get even more out of them, to do the hard work so that we will be richly blessed through your perfect, reviving, trustworthy, reliable um, word, which is greater than gold and more sweet to our Our Lord, in us, uh, may we have great taste buds which taste yes, and see that you are good. Um, all glory to you, Lord. We love you as a church and we glorify you, man. Amen. Amen. Amen.